Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. I'm her dad, Mark, and I'm a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide investigator in South Florida. And we're here to discuss our favorite true crime cases, so hope you guys enjoy. Today, we are going to be discussing the murder of Marcos Matsunaga. Marcos Matsunaga? Yes. Have you heard of this? I have not. Okay, so a a Netflix documentary just came out, uh, I don't know, maybe like a few weeks ago. Normally, I hate like foreign documentaries because this one, the the murder takes place in Brazil. So it's all the entire documentary is all in Portuguese, but they have it like dubbed over in English. Okay. But it was such an interesting case that I was like glued to it, even though I normally like don't really like the foreign docs because I hate the dubbing. I find it annoying. So I got a lot of my information from the documentary. I also got some information from uh, various articles, which I'll link in the show notes. This documentary, I'm just going to put it out there. It's super one-sided. It's like very obviously one-sided. They don't have any of the family like actually interviewed in it just like the murderers interviewed and stuff so it's it's very like one-sided on the side of the murderer so they only talk to the murderer they like not even yeah. like the, the police or the investigators they nothing? talk to the investigators which i have okay. some quotes from them and they uh and there's just some crazy characters in the story so we'll go ahead and get started alizi matsunaga was born in okay i'm gonna butcher some of this because it's portuguese Chapinzinho, Paraná, Brazil. And she was born into a family of humble means. Her hometown was a very small and rural town. Elise's father abandoned the family when Elise was only three years old. Her, her mom became a single parent pretty early on. And obviously it's a poor community there. So she was pretty desperate to find work. So she had to get work as a housekeeper in the capital city. So she basically had to move away from Elise. So Elise went to go live with her grandmother and her aunt who she became really, really close to. So eventually her mom remarries while she's in the capital and she returns back to Elise's hometown with her new husband and Elise ends up moving into a separate home with them. And shortly after that, her her mom and her new stepdad, they have a baby. So it's her and her half-sister. Right, okay. So trigger warning for anyone listening, we're going to talk about some childhood sexual abuse. So if you, (sighs) if that's not your jam, you may want to, Fast forward, that's all right. So unfortunately, as Elise grew older, her stepfather began sexually abusing her and her sister. He ch- he would change the doorknobs on the bathroom so that it wouldn't lock on the inside. And I guess the abuse started out, um, she talks about it in the documentary, it started out as him just basically like barging into the bathroom when she would use it and be like, oh, oops, my bad. Didn't know you were in here. Just to get like a look at her, basically. Okay. And um, what age do we know? Like what age it started? They don't really say, and I haven't been able to find it in any okay. of the, even the uh, articles and stuff. Uh, she talks about one specific instance when she was 15, but I, it seems like it was going on prior Probably to that. Before that. Yeah. So the instance when she was 15, she said that one day she was showering and basically she caught her stepdad watching through, I guess they had a window in the bathroom. So she obviously immediately jumped out of the shower and put a towel around her. 
And I guess, meanwhile, he had run into the house and he basically grabbed her and sexually assaulted her. She managed to escape and she basically ran out of the house with only a towel wrapped around her and I guess like hid in the woods for a while. So the next day, Elise decided to run away from home. She packed a bag with only some clothes and she brought a knife to defend herself. So initially she went to her godmother's house and she borrowed $50 from her. From there, she pretty much walked around aimlessly. She didn't really have a place to go. That night, she slept in the woods under a bush. Jeez. And the next morning, a, a man on a horse just happened to kind of come across her in the in the jungle. And he invited her to basically take sanctuary like in his house. He felt bad for her. She agrees to go. So when I first heard this, I was like, oh, God, please tell me this guy doesn't end up being like a psycho. Yeah, this is going to be a, right another abuser or something like that. But no, he was really nice. He he okay. fed her. Um, she's she's this is the she's a 15 years old at this time, right? Right. Okay. Uh, he fed her. He allowed her to sleep that night. And then the next morning he called Child Protective Services. So he seems like actually a pretty nice guy. Child Protective Services picked Elise up. She was obviously scared to tell them about the abuse that was going on at home. She basically gave them a fake name because she didn't want them to send her back to her house. Oh, so so for- she, gave her, she gave herself a fake name. Right. So yeah, when they asked her, like, who are you? She basically made up an identity. For 45 days, Child Protective Services, they really couldn't figure out where her family was or who she was because she wouldn't give them a real name. But meanwhile, her entire family was pretty much searching for her. They had called the police. They'd called Child Protective Services. Eventually, Nobody nobody knows about the abuse yet in the family. Right. Because she ran Um, away the day after it happened or after this incident. Right. Her aunt later in court testimony, uh, she says, I always had because it's the aunt is the mom's sister. And she said, I always had an inkling that something was going on, but she would always say no. Like she, you know, she never admitted to it until she was older. Eventually, they were able to connect that she was the missing teen. So she was sent back to her family and her mother and her aunt went to go pick her up. And she basically begged her aunt to move in with her rather than stay with the mom. And her mother agreed. Following that, she lived with her aunt and her grandmother. And as a teenager, Elise dreamed of earning a college degree, but obviously being from a poor family in Brazil, she had no way of affording college. She wanted to be a nurse. So in order to pay for nursing school, she began working as an escort. So in the documentary, the filmmaker interviewing her asks, uh, how many dates would you go on a day? And Elise says 10 per day. So that's a, that's a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. The, the mother stayed with the with the, the stepdad? You know, they or... don't really go into it. I know that later on, they're not together. Well, her mom passes away. So I'm not sure if when she died, she was still married to the stepdad or they had already ended their relationship by that point. Right. But I know during the docu, like during the time of when she, the murder happens and stuff, the stepdad's still alive, but they don't have like a relationship, you know? Of course, yeah. So no one in Elise's personal life knew about her being an escort. She kept it a secret. Of the experience, Elise said, quote, shame doesn't put food on the table. Pride doesn't put food on the table. Even though prostitution is seen as something that is degrading, it was all I could do at the time. It was my bargaining chip, end quote, which I yeah, hear when you. Have, when you have no alternatives, I mean, you have to do what you have to do to survive. So, Well, and to me, at least she's doing something positive with the money, you know, like she's using it to pay for school and better her life and her education. Yeah. Eventually she graduates and she works as a nurse through her early twenties. Eventually Elise decides she wants to become a lawyer. 
So she begins escorting again to pay for law school. Wow. Basically, the way she would escort her, she'd make a profile on this. I guess there's just like websites for hiring escorts. So on the website, she didn't use her real name. She called herself Kelly. So it was through that site that Elise first met our victim, which is Marcos Matsunaga. So Marcos came from family money. He was extremely wealthy. He was one of the uh, his family's one of the richest in Brazil. His grandfather started one of the biggest Asian food brands in Brazil. It's called Yoki, which I've never heard of it. So Marcos worked for the company. He took a liking to Elise and began hiring her over and over again. So eventually they began dating. And the way they describe it in the documentary is they basically kind of come to some sort of agreement where he agrees to stop hiring escorts. And she agrees to stop working as one because Marcos is going to fund her lifestyle. So she will she will have no need to work anymore. He's going to pay for law school and pay her living. Okay. However, there's one small problem with that. Marcos is already married. I was going to say he's probably already married. (laughs) And he has a daughter. Oh, fantastic. Great stand up guy. So Elise was well aware of it from the beginning. She knew he was married, which ill. So despite that. Yeah, but, but wait a second now. Hold on. So if she already knows that, right, she's already a prostitute, right, to make money. Yeah, sex worker. Right, so a sex worker. Okay, so she does not have to do that anymore. And she only has to sleep with a married man who's going to take care of her. Right. That's To me, I think that's a little bit better than being a sex worker. I mean, I I, I get I it, but don't be a homewrecker. I understand that, but. Uh, I hate a homewrecker. I get it. I'm just saying. She willingly becomes his mistress. So he's, he puts her up, buys her fancy cars, a nice fancy apartment. They are dating behind his wife's back for three years. And I guess throughout the relationship, Marcos continuously claimed that his marriage was over and his wife was horrible and the marriage was horrible. But I'm like, you're staying in it for quite a while for somebody who uh, right. doesn't like it. Right. So finally, after three years of dating, he divorces his wife. And he and Elise get married. Okay. So his family, obviously being a wealthy family, had no idea that she was an escort. He, none of his friends or anyone knew. Okay. Um, so they hid, they hid that fact. They hid that fact. I yeah. guess. Okay. Yep. So in the beginning, by all accounts, their marriage was very harmonious. They took lavish vacation or lavish vacations. They uh, went on hunting trips together, which ill, but apparently they were both like really avid hunters, okay. like for like wild game and stuff. Wow, all right. And they began trying to have a baby pretty early on, but after trying for some time and not having any luck, they decided to try in vitro, which I'm sure they could afford. Right, yeah, well. So in the, in the Netflix documentary, Elise claims it was at that point that their marriage began to go downhill because basically she describes it as like she just got too hormonal and he didn't like it, which I'm like, once again, it's not, not sounding, granted, this is a one-sided yeah. statement, but right. not looking good for Marcos. So in 2010, Marcos and Elise, they're out of town together. And while they're in the hotel room, Elise decides to go take a shower. And I guess Marcos leaves the hotel room. So when Elise gets out, his computer's up and there's a Skype call coming in from some random woman. (laughs) So obviously she gets suspicious. She starts going through the chat on on Skype. Have you ever ever even used Skype? No. Yeah. I did years ago, but I don't, you know. Well, yeah, I I don't even remember there being like a chat on there, but I guess there was. So she discovers that basically through the chat history that he's been seeing this woman for 
quite a while. They've been secretly meeting at like restaurants and hotels. Elise confronts Marcos when he returns to the hotel room and she accuses him of having an affair. First, Marcos claims it was just a work meeting. He was just meeting her. He was just meeting her in hotels for work. Sure. Business deals. Business deals. For Asian food. Which I always find it so funny that men are just morons. I'm like, do you really think that she's going to believe like you just happened to meet this woman in hotel rooms when you probably have some sort of office building that you work from? Like, that makes no sense. Right. There's yeah. Well, you know, deny it till you die. Well, he pretty much did. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's literally what happened almost. Okay. And the show's over. Gotta go. Bye. All right. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elise. He's dead. Bye. He's dead. That's the end. So unfortunately, that's that's not where this story ends. But Elise goes to see her attorney. She decides she wants a divorce, obviously, because he's cheating on her. He, meanwhile, he's still denying all this. Of course. In the midst of all of that, Elise finds out she the in vitro is taken. She's pregnant. Of course. Great timing. Yeah, absolutely. It's the way Murphy works. Murphy's so, <laughs> <laughs> so when she tells Marcos the news, he finally admits to the affair. He begs her for forgiveness. He promises to never cheat again. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in her videotaped confession, the detective asks her, quote, but did you truly forgive him or were you still worried? How was it? And Elise responds, quote, I forgave him. I believed he wouldn't do it again. That was her first mistake. Yeah. Pr- yeah. Problem number one. They always do it again. Somebody had to get right up on the mic and get all deep voice with that. Because is my is my trauma coming out? <laughs> For a while, their marriage improves. But six months after their daughter is born, Elise claims it begins to go downhill again. And they began to have seri- uh, serious arguments again. In her police confession, she states, quote, he would go out, didn't seem to care. He would hardly spend any time with us. I had to beg for him to get involved, end quote. So she said that at first she thought it was because of all the stress he was facing at work, because at the time, Marcos and his family had decided to sell Yoki and they were selling to General Mills. So it was it was a huge negotiation and a huge deal. The company eventually would sell for two billion reais, which I think I'm saying that right. That's the currency in Brazil. Brazil. But that roughly translates to $380 million in American money. Okay. That's a lot of money still. A lot of money. A lot of money. Well, especially in a poorer country. Well, it's $2 billion in Brazil. So, right. Which is $2 billion. I mean, right. So she was thinking, oh, he's just stressed about these deals and selling the company. But eventually she starts to believe that he's having another affair. Surprise, surprise different woman or we don't know yet it turns out to be a i think it's a different woman that's how they make it seem but they never like directly okay say so the fighting begins to get worse and elise insists that he has a mistress marco is insisting that he's being faithful and she's crazy so in the netflix documentary elise says quote he would call me crazy he said i was making things up seeing things that weren't there end quote so basically he's gaslighting her which makes me infuriated when men do that. You're just making her feel crazy when you know damn well that you're doing exactly what she's accusing you of. <laughs> Is that uh, the official definition of gaslighting? Yeah. Have you have you heard of gaslighting? I've heard the term, but I really never. So it's basically 
it's like a psychological term, but it's basically when a person makes the opposite person feel crazy or, or nuts and they do it so long and for so often that you really start to question your sanity yeah, and you're, you're like, well, am I, am I crazy? Am I the one that's being like nuts? Am I the one who, but really they, they know they're doing it. Oh, okay. It's intentional. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like a manipulation. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Typically it's men doing it to women or at least historically that's how the term was coined. Of course. I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying that Marcos deserved to be murdered, but there's no. a special place in hell for men like that. <laughs> okay. Finally, Elise decides to hire a, a private investigator, which I was like, good for her. And while the private investigator follows Marcos around, she decides she's going to go back to Parana, which is where her aunt and grandmother live and, and visit. The first night she leaves, the PI follows Marcos to a restaurant where he films him meeting this young, pretty Brazilian woman. Mm -hmm. The tape shows Marcos hugging and caressing the girl outside of the restaurant. Like you can, they literally show the actual footage in the documentary. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And I mean, you could definitely tell there's something going on. Definitely yeah, romantic yeah, or sexual, however you want to. So the PI immediately calls Elise and he informs her of what's going on. So she's obviously devastated. So she immediately calls Marcos and it's kind of funny. She played it kind of cool instead of, you know, calling him and being like, I know where you're at. She right. basically was just like, hey, babe, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I, you know, it's the funniest thing. I just went out with some coworkers to uh, celebrate the selling of the company. We're just out having some drinks. And she's like, no, I know where you are, bitch. Yep, she was just giving him the rope and he was just tying the noose. That's right. On May 19th, 2012, Elise returns back to their apartment in Sao Paulo, which they live in this huge penthouse suite at the top of this like apartment building. Right. She confronts Marcos with the tape. So that's the last night Marcos is ever officially seen. Dun, dun, dun. So on May 21st, two days after the confrontation, mm -hmm. Elise goes over to Marcos' parents' house. So she tells the parents that Marcos is having an affair. She shows them the tape as proof, which I was like, man, that's pretty ballsy. That is pretty ballsy, but... She also tells them that when she confronted Marcos with the tape, that they basically argued and that he packed some clothes and left their apartment to go some to go stay somewhere else. And mm. she claims not to have seen him or been in contact with him since. And she doesn't know where he's at. Two days prior. Two days after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, the argument She's, was two days. It's, it took her two days to, to, to make this revelation or whatever. Right. Okay. So the family is shocked because they had no idea that there had even been marital problems. Like they had no idea about the previous cheating, like nothing. So, he's so they're thinking they're just this like happily married couple. She informs Marcos's family that when he left the apartment on the previous Sunday, he claimed he had to attend a work meeting with the representative from General Mills. And she claims that he told her the meeting might run late and he might not come home that night because obviously they were fighting. And also he had an early meeting the next day. So after Marcos didn't return home Sunday night, she didn't really think much of it. But then the next evening when he still wasn't home, she kind of became worried and she began calling and asking if anyone had heard from him, like his family and friends. Right. Around that same time, Elise also emailed the couple's reverend. Wait, but she, th those phone calls were made prior to her going to the family and showing the tape and stuff? Right. Because she went over to the parents' house, but she was also calling like his brother, his cousins, um, like, like friends. That's like confirmed that she did all that, like in a documentary? Or yeah. Like yeah. Like she was calling and asking, basically telling them, oh, I don't know where he is. Like, have you seen him? Have you heard from him? Right. So 
I guess they were, they had been going to a marriage counselor. I say marriage counselor in quotes because it's a reverend. And I'm like, I don't understand why a, a reverend is. I feel like marriage counseling should be done by like a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist. Yeah. yeah but historically priests and reverends and stuff have always kind of done that as well. Like, you know, hmm. ministered to, to married. Family. I mean, I get, I, it's one thing if you're ministering it, but don't call yourself a marriage counselor. You're not. Well, they're counseling on marriage. So I guess. It's just interesting to me that a priest could do that who's never been married. Explain to yeah. me how that works. Well, it's all through, you know, the religious beliefs and the teachings of the Bible or whatever book, religion, you know, you, you follow. So Well, it did not help Elysian Marcos. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right. Apparently, clearly not, or we wouldn't be talking about it. Right. <laughs> the marriage counselor slash reverend, his name is Renee Gotts. So she sends him an email around the same time. And she states, quote, good afternoon, Reverend Renee. Apologies for disturbing you again. Marcos left home two days ago, and we haven't heard from him since. His family and I are worried. Did he mention anything to you? Thank you, Elise. Mm. Uh, later, he has a videotaped deposition, and they show it. And, he, and Reverend Renee says, quote, well, the first thing I thought was they probably had another fight. <laughs> Which I'm like, wow, first thought. Like, you know that marriage is going downhill. That was his yeah. first thought. Yeah, if he, yeah if he, the, the reverend already knew that. Yeah. After receiving the email, he decides to email Marcos himself to see if maybe he'll answer him. So Marcos did not immediately reply. So then Reverend Renee eventually sends him another email. He still did not reply. Mm-hmm. So in his deposition, he, he stated that's when he kind of started to think that, okay, there's something else going on here because he wouldn't just, he, he may ignore his wife, but he wouldn't ignore me. Right. Well, I'm going to throw it out here that she was she was laying the foundation for an alibi. You know, you'll see this case is interesting to me because you'll see that this was not a well thought out crime. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Although I, 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 I first look and what I know so far with her saying that she started immediately calling people and blah, that's she's trying to lay the foundation that he left. She doesn't know where he's at. She's made the effort to try to find him. Yeah. Uh, you know, where is he? I don't know. You know, he, we got in a fight and he left right oh my god i'm gonna call all our friends and family and and show them tapes of him cheating on me right exactly eventually the reverend emails elise back asking basically how she's doing and elise replies quote thank you very much reverend i am not well i hope they find marcos soon i am desperate i'm feeling bad for his mother i can't even imagine how hard it is for a mother not to know where her son is thank you for your prayers yeah that's suspicious don't be suspicious don't be suspicious so upon discovering that their son is missing marcos's parents hire an attorney because they their first assumption is that he's kidnapped because i guess you know in brazil it's pretty common for like wealthy family members to get kidnapped and then they want to ransom that's a big thing in south america yeah so that's that was the immediate first assumption by the police and the family. They think, okay, like he just came into this billion dollars. They people found out about it. They kidnapped him, right? And they're you know we're gonna get a ransom note soon. Okay, yeah, that's that's a plausible idea. I mean, plausible uh, possibility. So on the third day of Marcos's disappearance, Elise goes to see her own attorneys. Uh, uh, she meets with Luciano and Juliana Santoro. So they're a married couple, but they're also both attorneys. Um, So both, interestingly, both Luciano and Juliana were Elise's former law professors because remember she went to law school. 
Right. Um, so she knew them like she had taken classes with them. Okay. Um, so she explained to them that Marcos was last seen leaving their apartment and she wanted representation for when the police came to search the apartment because she knew that eventually that would happen. As a detective, do you find that suspicious or do Absolutely. you think because here's the thing to me, I feel like it's a lose lose situation because for me, like, let's just say I was in a situation where my husband, you know, Logan disappears and like, really, it's it's no fault of mine. Like, he just is gone. Obviously, I'm not an idiot. I know that the wife's going to be like the first suspect. It, it, it's almost like, like a catch-22. Right. Okay. So when, like, I've had a couple cases where people have gotten a lawyer before I've gotten a chance to, like, talk to him or whatever. And what's always going to happen, and in, in this case, when they're coming to look at the house, the police, I mean, again, we're talking, this is Brazil, so I don't know, but at least here, we get a search warrant, right, to go into the house to try to Yeah, find which out. they do in Brazil, too. Okay. So whether you have an attorney or not, the attorney can prevent us from doing the search. So if you have nothing to do with the crime, then you don't need representation. It's your husband. Like in this case, her husband's missing. So why would you need an attorney to represent you when they come serve a search warrant to search the house that you know is going to happen? You would want to be 100% forthcoming and yes, look wherever you want. And so that right there, you know, it makes it suspicious. We can't, you know, you can't always assume, you know, people get scared and, you know, naturally um, everybody has their own idea of, you know, what they need to do in those situations. But generally if a person gets an attorney before the police officer even gets to them, there's just something going on there. Like they have some type of knowledge they're involved, you know, they may not be directly like the, she might not be directly the murderer. I don't know, but something's up, you know, Unless you're like uber rich, which she is, but she didn't, she wasn't born uber rich. Right. They, they, I mean, they, they have, you know, usually people that have money always have attorneys or representation with them, you know, even when they're not in trouble, like for different reasons. Yeah. Because even the Matsunaga family, like they have like family attorneys who are in the documentary and stuff that they like represent them all the time. Of course, because you got to protect that money. And that's, you know, that's who's going to do it because everything's going to happen through the court systems and, and whatnot. So, but yeah, as, as, as a law, as in the law enforcement profession, if they lawyer up right away before you even talk to them, that kind of sets off, you know, like some red flags, you know, man, I would set off lots of red flags. Cause I'm not going to lie. That would be the first thing I would do. Get an attorney. Yeah. I mean, not yeah. because I have anything to hide necessarily, but I guess just because it's like, I don't want to be railroaded. Like I don't want. Yeah. Okay. And so saying that, yes, it, it does that happen? Of course, does is, you know, is the possibility that something like that can happen? Of course. But if you truly have no involvement and you're the wife whose husband is missing and you truly have nothing, you know, nothing to hide, there's, there's really nothing they can pin on you. I mean, like, I personally would, I, w- I don't think that I would get an attorney like for this search thing. Cause I'm like, there's nothing you're going to find in my house. That's like illegal or bad. But like, yeah, but if- once they question you, yes, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, yes, that's a smart thing to do. Cause you, you know, a, a simple, like if you're making an omission, it may not be, it may be inconsequential to you, but it may trigger something or it may open up the idea of something in the investigation, which then kind of, you have to now dispel that statement right. or whatever. So, you know, I, I get it. I understand, you know, why people do it and it's not naturally your right to do that. But as an investigator, we don't ever want that because we want to be able to talk to the person freely, but that's due process. And, you know, that's the, the right. So that's the law. law. Miranda It's called Miranda. 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 You have the right to remain silent. Yes, Anything you, you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. You have the right to an attorney. You do. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be afforded to you. 
Do you know how I learned that? Because you've been don't, don't, bana, bana, bana. <laughs> uh, Law and order. Boom, oh, boom. Law and order. So meanwhile, no ransom demands arrive. So everyone begins to think that's pretty odd, uh, including the police. On May 24th. Yeah, because he's worth all that money. They would have made that demand right away. Right. Right away. Might have so, taken a day or two to get things in place. But yeah, that they don't wait a month to make a ransom demand, you know. Now, uh, on May 24th, 2012, so this is five days after he's been gone, according to Elise, because she's the last one who saw him. Right, right. Marcos's brother, I think it's pronounced Maro, M-A-U-R-O. That's correct. Finally receives an email from Marcos with the subject's news. And the email states, quote, tell mom and Elise I'm okay. I just can't talk right now, Marcos. So straight into the point. Yeah, no, that's, yeah. I'm okay, but I'm not going to tell you where I am and just stop looking for me. I'm going to claim bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ironically, the brother's relieved. He doesn't think he's like, oh, Marcos, he's Uh, fine. You know, just because they got a billion dollars doesn't mean they're intelligent. Well, that's true. Well, you know, what's also funny is I think Mark, I think Marcos got the brains, but not the looks and the brother got the looks, but not the brains because they show both obviously both of them in the documentary and Marcos is not a good looking guy like at all. But he's the one that like runs the company, blah, blah, blah. And then Maro's like they show him in in, like in court. And I'm like, are you sure you're related? Like you're hot. (laughs) Like how did did you both come from the same parents? But not a lick of sense in his brain? Apparently not, because he was fooled by by that email. So he immediately goes to Elise and to his mom and is like, look, Marcos is great. It's fine. We could stop worrying. Everything's great. Basically, the family assumes, okay, he's just run off with his mistress and he'll like come back when he's ready. Off of that one silly email? Yes. Wow. Okay. Like I said, good looking yeah, guy. Yeah. Hey, but, well. you know, not much upstairs, apparently. Hey, uh, yeah. On May 28th, so this is now nine days after he was last seen, the police find dismembered body parts thrown randomly about on the side of a remote dirt. It's kind of like, they show it in the documentary, but it's like a dirt road. It's in a little town called Kosha, I think is how it's pronounced. But it's like the middle of the jungle, basically. So it's about 30 kilometers from Sao Paulo, which is where they live. Hold on, back up one second. Did the police ever go to the the penthouse or whatever? Not yet. Oh, oh, okay. okay. 30, yeah, so 30, it's only 30 kilometers from um, Sao Paulo. So it's not that far, but it's like, you know, remote. Right. The body parts were all wrapped in blue trash bags okay. and the incisions were very clean and there was very little blood found at the scene. Okay. Or within the bags. Okay. So like, yeah, one of the police officers who originally saw it in the documentary, he says mm-hmm. that at first he thought it was wax like figures because there was so little blood that like he thought, oh, this is like wax like a yeah, wax was, sculpture yeah, because it was dismembered and drained somewhere else and wrapped yeah. and then transported yeah the body was not immediately identifiable because it had, it was so badly decomposed but it was obvious that the victim was male that he had pale skin and he was wearing very expensive clothing there was a pair of diesel jeans which remember diesel jeans <laughs> i do i do remember i had an ex who wore bedazzled jeans yeah the hamster yeah the hamster it was very embarrassing anyway they find that so he's wearing these or the body is wearing these diesel jeans which i guess they they said in the documentary uh, retail they're worth 600 reais so that's about 114 in u.s currency maybe i'm just a dumb american i just i didn't find it to be that expensive i was like i'm not one necessarily to spend 200 on a pair of jeans but like it's not like unheard of but right they are are pricey those you know i mean i don't know about diesel but there are 
you know, expensive jeans. Are... Well, then when one of the reporters in the documentary explains it in terms of Brazil, and I was like, man, I just feel like such privileged trash now because they were like, basically, the he says the pants were worth more than one month's salary on minimum wage in Brazil. Yep. I which is that. crazy because that's six hundred dollars in one month like how do people survive they don't that's why they have so many there's so much poverty in the favelas and all that you know the bad the bad the, the slums and stuff they're unbelievable so eventually a witness once this is on the news that they found this body and and all of that a witness comes forward they claim that they saw a man get out of a black vehicle they walked around to the trunk and tossed blue garbage bags from the vehicle which when I heard this, I'm like, okay, it's cool that a witness saw it. But if I see somebody tossing garbage bags like from a vehicle, wouldn't your first, you know, once they drive away, wouldn't your first instinct be like, oh, go see what's in those garbage bags? Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, maybe, I mean, I've obviously like, you know, I don't know what's normalized in Brazil. Like maybe people do that, throw out trash on the side of the road. But, yeah. you know, here, obviously that's not normal. I'd be like, what are they throwing away? Right. They're littering. <laughs> yeah I, honestly i'd be pissed i hate a litterer right well, uh, well that's usually what happens so i'd be like they deserve that a thousand dollar fine that there's signs for on the side of the highway <laughs> maro maro ds sorry no you're gonna be in, you're gonna be in there with all your glory blowing your nose <laughs> all right people people need to get to know the real you no okay all right <laughs> maro ds is a detective in Sao Paulo. So he's asked to lead the murder investigation. So remember I said that in the documentary. Another tomorrow. Right. This okay. is this is the uh, the lead detective. So okay. he's in the actual documentary. He To me, he was like the mo most trustworthy character. Okay. Because we'll get into it. Like there's other side that eventually like is for the prosecution and stuff. And I'm like, you, you guys don't come across so well. Wow, okay. But this guy does. He seems smart with it, logical. In the documentary, he explains that his first thoughts upon first seeing the body, and he says, quote, then I saw the photos, I saw the reports, and I said, these are clean cuts. They know what they were doing. Whoever did this knew anatomy, and it was a hate crime. Whoever did this was feeling a great deal of hate towards the victim. There must be some strong connection between the criminal and the victim, end quote. She's a, she's a trained nurse, right? Yes, she yeah. is. All right. And an avid hunter. Oh, so she knows how to clean and she, she knows, knows how, how to, to clean that meat. Clean, yep. All right. Field dress it and all that stuff. Okay, go ahead. The medical examiner who examines the body, he's also in the documentary. And let me just tell you, this guy's the weirdest fucking guy. I've never met a medical examiner myself, but if they're all this weird, I don't know how anyone trusts them. He comes across as such a freak. <laughs> let me, I can't. I'm pretty sure he's a serial killer. <laughs> Okay. He, he's first of all, he's wild looking. He has like long white hair, which that's one of my biggest pet peeves is I hate old men with long hair. It's like, it's not the 1960s anymore. Chop it off, get it cut. You're not, you're not fooling anybody. It's not cool. And it just looks creepy. You look like a pedophile, not a fan. Oh God. So already he had my biggest pet peeve, the long white hair. Ew. You just then destroyed my he retirement had these, look. These freaking, why you're going to grow out your hair. Please tell me oh, no. Just was going to you know now. i hate man buns i can't take it no I don't, i'm not gonna man bun it thank god all right focus he also had these crazy eyebrows like you know the ones that Pushy, stick yeah. out and they're like they look like <laughs> caterpillars on it he's crazy right he's they are a rare just... breed medical examiners are a rare breed so not only does he just look fucking insane but he everything he said in the documentary i was like are you okay sir <laughs> he go this is so this is one example this is a direct quote Quote, death is intriguing to us all. 
Therefore, the things that initially repulse us at some point can begin to attract us. Let me tell you something, ma'am. Don't tell anyone. People are always more beautiful on the inside than the out. Ah! Yeah, they yeah they have a special relationship with their uh, oh with their his, clients. His relationship sounds extra special. Like he's like a ne- necrophiliac or something. I'm like, you love dead bodies way too much, sir. <laughs> Seriously, like there are serial killers who don't say that shit. Like, do you know how you're coming across? It's not good. <laughs> he's just passionate about his profession. That's all. Well, okay. <laughs> The interviewer, after he says that, the interviewer goes, excuse me? Mind you, the interviewers are women, right? You could tell this guy's like so misogynistic. It's like gross. So she's like, excuse me? Because she's like, what the fuck, man? And he like taps his stupid water cup at her and like rolls his eyes dramatically like, oh, I can't be bothered to explain myself to this dumb woman. And then he goes, quote, I'd never go around cutting people open, of course. I only do it because it's my job. But people are more beautiful on the inside than the out. That is the truth. I've that seen is some people se- and it's not pretty. <laughs> I mean, I've never seen the inside of people, but I can tell you I don't want to. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's not for everybody. That's just some I'm telling you, that's some serial killer type shit. That's like stuff you see in movies where they're like, oh, look at the insides. <laughs> they're not all like that. Well, I would hope not. This guy, I swear to God, he's doing some he's doing some shady shit behind the scenes, this guy. Oh. All right, well. I don't know what the rules are in Brazil. I don't know how much oversight there is, but somebody needs to keep an eye on those bodies because he loves them too much. All right, let's He's move like on. cuddling them at night. I'm oh, sure. Cass. Cass. I'm telling you it's gross. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> the medical examiner discovers that there's a bullet wound to the side of the head and it exited out of the jaw. The fingers were in such bad condition that they couldn't be fingerprinted. However, from the head, they could tell that it was an Asian man. Okay. Thinking it may be Marcos at this point, the detectives ask his brother Maro, you know, not so smart Maro, to come down and look at the body to see if he's able to make a positive identification. So they kind of breezed over this in the documentary. And I was like, I had to rewind. I was like, "Mm, come again. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, they they do IDs that way. So he goes, no, no, no. What what the brother asked to see. Oh, oh, okay. He he goes (laughs) in the brother and he asks to see the hands and this is a direct quote from the the actual court proceedings he says the reason why he wants to see the hands is quote my brother had very distinctive hands what so he he id'd so he looked at the hands and go yep yep that's my brother no you no you can't id from hands i mean he was right it was him but i know but like unless there's like a tattoo or it's missing a finger he just had very distinctive hands and let me show were... you. They show video of his hands. They look fucking normal to me. What do, but what do I know? Oh, they oh they do? But they said they, they couldn't look normal. No, no, no. They don't show like the dead hands, but they show like the brother's oh. hands like in videos and stuff like while, while you know, oh, oh, Marcos's okay. hands oh, oh. like while he's alive. I thought, I and I'm like, they, they, they don't look distinctive to me. They look like everybody else's hands. All right. Well, creepy. So two creepers. Yeah, so far. So yeah, Maro positively, positively identifies the body uh, as that of his brother. From his hands. hands. From hands. All right from hands okay once the body was identified one of the yoki company directors maro the brother and elise go back to the couple's apartment and they begin to watch the security footage from the day that elise claimed marcos left which why they didn't do this sooner i don't know so they went through all the footage they didn't find any images of marcos leaving but and they have video during that timeline though like there wasn't video erased or anything like that or over recorded over or did they specify they didn't specify, but I mean, yeah. these were just them like as 
civilians looking at it. So I doubt that I don't even know if they would have the like capability of knowing, right. you know, okay. right. following that the police come to collect the footage. Right. Because obviously now they know he's been murdered and they viewed it for themselves as well. They also didn't find any footage of Marcos leaving the building. What they do see is footage of Elise Marcos, their nanny and their daughter arriving back at the building following Elise's arrival back from Parana. Because remember, she went to go visit her what family. Okay. So they're all coming back, basically, and Elise has her suitcase and everything, and they're going up the elevator. They show it in the documentary. Okay. They have one suitcase with them, which was Elise's, and all four ride up the elevator together. Okay. And that's Saturday, May 19th, and it's at 6.35 p.m. Okay. At 7 p.m., so roughly 30 minutes later, Marcos can be seen entering the elevator to go pick up a pizza. And in this footage, Marcos is wearing the same clothes that were found on the body, so the expensive-ass jeans. Right, the diesels. Right, the diesels. Yeah. So the next day on May 20th, the security footage shows Elise entering the elevator with three large suitcases by herself. Containing body parts. Oh, sorry. Correct. (laughs) And at 11.50 p.m., the footage shows her returning without any of her bags. Once it was determined there was no footage of Marcos leaving the residence, the detectives requested Elise's phone records, and they were basically able to place her in the exact location in in Kosha where the body parts were thrown out Mm -hmm. at the exact time that the witness saw somebody dumping the body parts. Do they own a black car? You know, they didn't really say that in the documentary, but I assume... So, although it could have been, it could have been dark colored, like anything really, because it was dark out when they saw it. But they said it was a male, right? That was emptying. Yeah. The witness saw a male and this comes back later. So at that point, the detective secured a search warrant for the couple's apartment and an apprehension warrant to arrest Elise. Mm -hmm. Upon their arrival, Elise calls her attorneys and she asked them to come to her residence. She was handcuffed and brought to the Sao Paulo police station and the media was nuts. Like they show her going into the station and they're like, it's crazy. Like, and she's like down trying to get through the crowd. Right. So at first, Elise attempts to deny that she was involved in the murder at all. But eventually she confesses and her confession is recorded by the police. Okay. So this is how Elise describes the events leading up to the murder. She said, quote, he picked up the pizza and we were having dinner like always. As we were sitting at the table, we had another argument. Every time I mentioned another woman, he said, oh, you're crazy. You're crazy. I know everything. I hired a private detective. Then I remember he slapped my face. He had never done that. He kept denying it with so much confidence and he kept portraying me as the villain. What is happening to me? Am I really going insane? All I know is that I went to the cabinet in the other room and got my gun, end quote. At this point... Elise claims Marcos said, shoot me, you coward, shoot me, or else get out of here. Go back to Parana and your shitty family. Leave my daughter here. I still, I still can't tell what kind of emotion made me pull that trigger. There were so many emotions going through me right there and then. I was feeling angry at him. I was feeling scared. I was feeling relieved to know that I wasn't crazy. Wow. Okay. So during the argument leading up to the shooting, Elise claims Marcos verbally abused her. She said he called her a whore and was telling her that her family was trash. She also claimed that during the argument, she told him, quote, I want a divorce. Quote, he looked at me and said, you think someone with your reputation will find Prince Charming? I know men. You're only going to find guys who want to fuck your end quote. She also alleged that he told her, quote, go, just go then. But don't you dare take my daughter with you. You leave her here because if you go and take her with you, you'll end up being shot. You won't even see it coming, end quote. She also alleged that he repeatedly told her, quote, do you think any judge would grant custody to a whore? 
Later, Elise claimed she was most scared that if they were to divorce, that Marcos would receive custody of their daughter due to him being so wealthy and her past as a sex worker. That definitely would have come out for sure. Yeah. Also, Elise claimed that Marcos repeatedly would call her crazy and he even threatened to have her committed to a psychiatric institution. So this is like key gaslighting. And this is proven because uh, you'll see in a minute that their reverend says that, yeah, he really did that. Of course, he has the money. He has... The power he has, you know, so and he's gaslighting her, like making her making it seem like she's the crazy one that she's like accusing him of things that aren't true, that she's like losing it. Right. She confessed that that was one of her greatest fears in the documentary. She says, quote, obviously, I'd never see my daughter again. And how would I ever get out of that situation? So maybe she was fearful he'd get custody, I'm assuming. is, And that also maybe that was his play of like trying to make it look like she's crazy so he could get custody. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Laying the foundation for that. Yeah, that makes sense. Prior to that night, Marcos was actually telling the Reverend that Elise was insane and she needed to be institutionalized. The Reverend later testified about it in his video de- deposition. He said Marcos had already found an institution in Capinas, uh, Brazil, and wanted to have Elise sent there. So in the definition, the reverend says that, quote, I suggested that he that maybe he could possibly get in touch with a psychiatrist, an outpatient psychiatrist. So the doctor could prescribe her medication, try to calm her down and eventually even maybe consider committing her to a mental health institution, end quote. So basically, the reverend was buying it. This is why reverends should not be counselors. You're not a mental health professional. Shut up. I mean, at least at least he's saying that she should, you know, medication and possibly she needs to be, you know, admitted. But at least he's kind of like, you know, check which to be fair, who knows like what and, you know, playing devil's advocate, who knows what he saw in their like, quote unquote, counseling sessions. Maybe maybe she was crazy or maybe he. I mean, she did kill the guy. So like she had to be like some level of crazy. But I also think that having, you know, momentary fits of rage, like, you know, like that blackout rage or or whatever, where. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, not that that's not that that's a, a defense or anything like that, but you know, it's people truly lose control. They black out, and they really, you know, they they. I, I truly believe people lose get so angry, and that their brain shuts off for a brief moment. And yeah, know, I th- totally believe that because even in the documentary, she says over and over again, like, I can't tell you why I did it. Yeah, I think it's the brain's mechanism to try to defend itself or keep itself from remembering the trauma or, or something. Well, I also like, do you know, think that when people like when people are gaslighted and obviously it's up for interpretation, whether she truly was gaslighted or like if she was just making it up as part of her defense. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally think she really was gaslighted, but I, yeah. I think when people are gaslighted, it really does. It can at least drive a person really crazy. Like for sure. Right. Because Especially when someone's telling who's... you all the time that you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy, like, and you start to believe it, you're going to start acting crazy. Right. And especially if the person's not mentally strong. I mean, I don't know what, you know, what she was, but, you know, there's some people, you know, naturally people, some people are more strong willed or strong minded than others, you know, and they, well, like, well, and she also had trauma in her past. So I'm sure that that didn't help if either. You, if you looked, uh, not to, to go down a different subject, but if you're historically looking at cults and how the cult leaders brainwash or take, you know, take over these people's lives and have them, that's basically a stronger mind just taking over the, the, you know, the weaker mind or the less, um, experienced or however you want to, you know, word, word that terminology, but basically it's what it is, you know, which we should cover some cult stuff. We can because we, that's some interesting shit. That's some very can't make this shit up type of shit. That is some very can't make this shit up. 
The Reverend also confirmed that Elise was fearful for her life prior to the murder, because in his deposition, he even said, quote, she mentioned that the marriage was over and that she was fearful for her life, end quote. Well, I mean, that's definitely, I mean, in historically, in every single domestic violence case, there's a threat of violence, there's a threat of death, there's a, there's gaslighting, there's, you know, the threat of taking children away. I mean, all of those things, you know, take part, you know, like, to what degree naturally every you know every instance is different but i you know that's kind of the the cycle of domestic violence it's it's all present in some form or another which i guess it could be argued that even if if it really was a premeditated murder she could have just been stating that knowing like oh you know i'm laying the groundwork for because i know right. i'm gonna kill him right well maybe so, she's what's what i want a homicidal genius <laughs> maybe I, well it doesn't seem like it because no, well but... you'll see you'll see later the process or the prosecution kind of tr- tries to paint her as that i don't believe it like if if sh- if she was if it was really that premeditated it would have been done a lot better alizy claimed she went to go put the gun back after she'd impulsively grabbed it but marcos followed her and she felt threatened so she held on to it when he saw the gun in her hand he began yelling at her that she didn't have the guts to fire it in court, she said, quote, he was coming at me. I didn't know what I didn't know what he would do. We were arguing. He was calling me names, calling my family names. I couldn't take that anymore. I couldn't take it anymore. End quote. So when asked why she couldn't have just left the house rather than shoot Marcos, Elise replied, quote, I could have done so many things. I could have kept my mouth shut when I shouldn't have said anything about the detective. I shouldn't have said that, but I ended up telling him. I could have done a million things, but I wasn't myself at that moment. I don't know. I wasn't myself. I hadn't slept in two days. The detective kept calling me. I couldn't take it anymore. Every time he said I was crazy when I said he was with someone else, end quote. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, you know, if, if let's say that all those things did occur, then eventually, you know, your somebody's mental status or mental capacity or mental health is going to, you know, it's going to diminish a little bit. It's going to decrease or like you said, they're going to start believing it. You know, and there's going to be like a flick of a switch or, you know, something's going to snap that's going to cause them to fight or flight or, you know, like do, do something. I definitely see where, you know, if it was happening, you definitely could drive somebody to it. You know, Well, like, this story to me is one of those and we'll never obviously know the truth of like what really went down and, and it could be. But to me, this is one of those stories where I think both sides are like believable. You know what I mean? Right. It's obvious that she's at this point trying to paint like some kind of battered wife defense. Mm -hmm. After reviewing all of the evidence, the prosecutor, his name's Jose Carlos Cosenzo. He felt her confession was complete bullshit. So in Brazil, a confession will mitigate the sentence. So in other words, those who confess are given a lesser sentence. It's basically like meant as a sort of incentive to encourage people to confess to crimes. Really? Okay. Which I think kind of makes sense. I'm not saying like if you do murder that you should get, you know, 10 years just because you confess, but it is an incentive. You know, I I get where they're coming from with it. I I was like, that'd be kind of cool if it is a good incentive for people knowing, you know. Right, it is, but it's a little odd that the prosecutor is saying that the that the confession is is bullshit. I mean, well, we'll get into why because the oh. for, there's forensics like reasons why he thinks it's bullshit. But this oh, okay. this part prosecutor is also kind of like crazy. Like we'll see later on in the in the proceedings. I'm like, you're also not all there. You're not as you're not quite as crazy as the medical examiner, but you're still like not all there either. The only right. sane one in that I've like saw in the documentary, like I said, was the detective. The he detective. he okay. even later that even the detective is like the prosecutor is crazy. Yeah, it, yeah, it happens to us. We we come across them so. 
prosecutor Cosenzo believed she confessed basically at the advice of her attorney and purposely made it look like a crime of passion in a calculated effort to get a lesser sentence. Because in Brazil, a first-time offender who was found guilty of a crime of passion and concealment of a body, which obviously she was, she would also be charged with, they would only be sentenced to seven years in prison. Wow. That's the maximum okay. sentence. So with a confession, that sentence could be reduced by up to two-thirds, depending on the judge's decision. So wow. meaning the offender potentially could walk away with only serving three years. Three years, right. Yeah. Okay. Dang, so somebody. Okay. I don't really necessarily agree with that. I mean, I get that each case is unique onto itself. And I don't think that everybody who commits murder necessarily deserves life in prison. But right. three years for murdering and dismembering a guy? Yeah, yeah, that's a little light. <laughs> because the prosecutor felt like her confession was inaccurate, he charged her with three aggravators. So in, I thought this was interesting. So in Brazil aggravators are charges that can be added to to an initial charge because those charges somehow made the initial crime more serious. Okay. So with each aggravator, the sentence for the initial crime goes up. Interesting. Okay. If they're found guilty of them. Right, right. Of so course. once the ab- aggravators are added to charges, the sentence could potentially like double. Wow, okay. In addition to aggravated first-degree murder, Elise was charged with three additional aggravators so she was charged with foul motive because they alleged that she killed him for vengeance and money okay she was charged with cruel means because she dismembered the body and she was charged with the impossibility of self-defense by the victim say that one again um impossibility of self-defense by the victim so basically saying that she attacked him in a way that he was not able to defend himself okay gotcha or he didn't Uh, have an opportunity to defend himself fight back or what okay Following her confession, on June 6, 2012, detectives took Elise back to her apartment to reconstruct the crime while police filmed it. So they show, like, clips of this in the documentary, which I don't know if that's just normal procedure in Brazil. Like, they do this with every crime. Like, they make them reconstruct it if they, they confess. They brought her back to the scene and walked through the scene and how everything... Yeah, they had props and everything, like, fake gun. They had, like, a fake uh, body that was the same weight as, you know, like, one of those weighted mannequins or whatever. And she showed them how she dragged his body, like, where where oh, they wow, shot okay. from. Okay. But the thing that I found weird is Elise says at one point that her do- both her daughter and her aunt were present at that. Which I'm like, no, at the um, reenactment. Oh, 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 really? Which I thought is odd. Like, number one, it just seems like they would be contaminating the scene. But number two, it's like, why are you letting other people see evidentiary things that are taking place? Like, it's weird. I understand her attorneys being there, but. Yeah, right. Yeah, that is weird that there's a lot of family members there. And not to mention, I mean, her daughter was young. I think she was only like two at the most. But it's like, you really want a two-year-old watching all this? Does she ever address the... um... In her confession, or maybe we I just getting ahead of myself, the dismemberment part? Yeah, she does. Okay. okay. Following Elise's arrest, she wanted her daughter to remain in the custody of her aunt and her grandmother, because at this point, her mother had already died. Okay. So her only living relatives were her aunt and her grandmother. Okay. However, Marcos's parents demanded a DNA test, because at this point, it had come out in the media that Elise had been an escort. Oh. So they didn't believe that it was really his kid, but they did the DNA test and it was his kid. It was, okay. So basically, once they found out it was for sure Marcos, Marcos's, they okay. fought for custody and the judge granted them custody and she, they suspended, um, Elise's obviously in jail, so they suspended her parental rights. Of course they did. So this is where we're going to end part one. Okay. The next episode, we're going to talk about the trial, which is bonkers. 
The trial's honestly like more crazy than like the crime because they go into like all of this crazy and the prosecutor, he's a he's a <laughs> character, man. OK, I'm looking forward to that. Well, you get to hear it right away, but everybody else has to wait a week. Huh? Don't yeah, laugh well, at our fan. We'll, we'll end it here, fans. Uh, fan so far, just one. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have multiple, okay? Huh? We'll see. Jameson sponsor us. Easy enough. I'm about to go get a Jameson. Man, I want a Jameson. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye.